You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, great to see you today. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Jonah chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Jonah chapter 2, and then you also need to stick a finger in and kind of mark your place for Romans chapter 1. So Jonah chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1. Okay, I thought we were going to make it out of Jonah chapter 2 last week. We almost did. And we got snagged on verse 8 this week, though. And so let me read this to you, and then we'll, we'll kind of dive in. Verse 8 of Jonah chapter 2. Those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit their hope of steadfast love. And I, I actually like the NIV a little bit better on their translation. It's the one I kind of grew up knowing. And it says this. Those who cling to worthless idols... Worthless, vain idols. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Okay, so, so this passage, this, this verse, it's about to kind of introduce us into this deep and dangerous, this wide and far-reaching biblical theme of idolatry. And I think it's one of those themes that we need to be exposed to and kind of educated on. Like I think it's, it's worth us camping on this theme for a morning because I think by and large people are totally unaware of and ignorant to just uneducated on how idols work in our life what idolatry is how it plays itself out in our life we're just not aware of that modern men don't even think about these things when we think idolatry we think pagan people in some weird temple bowing down to like some weird statue right this is not okay the, the biblical scope of this is a lot wider it's a lot deeper and more dangerous than that. So I think it's important for us to take kind of a morning here. And just to kind of test you on it, like your awareness of how idolatry works, think about the book of Jonah. Idolatry is all over the place within Jonah. Okay, now think about our pagan sailors first. It's easy to see idolatry in them, right? You don't even have to be looking very hard. Read chapter one and you see it kind of pop out. So so here's the context for the pagan sailors. They are a, a, a people that that... A serious situation happens on board the ship, right? I mean, they are in a life-threatening circumstance. Pantheistic panic breaks out. They reach for the Rolodex, right? And they start calling every false god they can fathom. I mean, you just name the God, they're going to try it, right? They're looking for that right combination of the right prayer from the right person to the right God to save them. They're literally on their knees, calling out, pleading with, begging these gods to come and rescue them, deliver them, all right? So, so I, mean, I think we could look at that and say, okay, I get that. That's idolatry. But do you see it in our man Jonah? Because idolatry is just as present in him it's just a little more concealed, a little more covert, right? I mean, it's just a little, it's kind of hidden under the surface. It's this idolatry that for him is not out front and public, but it's buried in his heart. By the way, like it is for a lot of us. But see, we don't, we don't connect these dots that for Jonah, the reason that he is running is this root of idolatry in him. That the reason he is running from God is because he is running to an idol. He is believing in an idol. He is buying the lies of an idol, right? And so this is what's happening in Jonah. So when you start to see that, you start to see idolatry underneath all of the book of Jonah. It's everywhere in the book of Jonah. Not just in our pagan people, but in our, in our good 
boy, like our, our good prophet, Jonah. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Okay, so we've got to start to educate on ourselves on what that means and what this looks like. And listen, I, I, I would totally place a lot of the blame on pastors and preachers who don't preach in such a way where they are consistently calling out and confronting idolatry in people, where they're not explaining it and exposing it in people, right? And so when you kind of loop both of these things together, our unawareness of idolatry, pastors and preachers not preaching consistently on idolatry, it's staggering, it's strange, especially when you start to read the Bible and see how prevalent and pervasive idolatry is in the Bible. Now, I'm going to read you seven little verses here. We could read 200 of them, right? It's everywhere. Okay, so let me just give you a, a little sampling. We'll do a couple from the Old Testament and a couple from the New. This is going to be up on the screen for you if you need some help on these two. Exodus chapter 20. L- listen to idolatry being present everywhere in the scriptures. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. This is going to be the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. Probably an important one, right? right? This is number one, right? Here's the first one. He says this in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. First one, no gods before me, no idols. I will not coexist with any other mistress. I will not do it. Keep going here. Leviticus 19 verse four. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. I, I'm it. I, I'm the only true God. What, what are you going for other ones for? Like, what are you running after these other ones for? Look at um, Isaiah 42, verse 8. It'll be on the screen for you. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, look at Habakkuk 2, 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. It's kind of funny to me that throughout the Old Testament, when idols are talked about, it's typically under the context of they're just dumb. They don't make sense. They're ridiculous when you really think about it, right? In in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, free, uh, flee from idolatry. Run from it. Get away from it. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, for, uh, for, they see themselves, uh, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, listen to what he says here, this is what they did. This, is, this was the, the work of God in their life and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? It's all throughout the New Testament as well. 1 John 5, 21, the last verse in 1 John is a summary of everything that, Paul, or that, that John has been teaching throughout the letter. So, so he's going to summarize it all in one concise statement at the end of the letter. And here's what he says for that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. It, it's all throughout the scriptures. With that being said, Oz uh, Guinness, a theologian and author, here's what he said about idolatry. He said, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. So not sex, not money, not marriage. Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. Yet contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. 
You see that? I mean, this is where we're just completely unaware of how these idols work in our heart and in our life. And this is what he goes on to say. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. Here's what he's saying. If we want to be a faithful and a fruitful people here, don't you want that? If we want to be a faithful and fruitful people, it means that we have got to develop an awareness of how idols work, that we've got to recognize where idols are in us, and we've got to start resisting those idols. This is a massive biblical theme. And see, idols are not just on pagan altars. It's not bowing the knee to some bizarre statue. It's in the minds of well-educated people like you and me, churchgoers, like you and me, right? It's in our heart and mind as well. Listen to what Richard Keyes, who's written a lot about idolatry, says. As the main issue to describe unbelief. That's what idolatry is. In the Bible, it's the main way that the Bible describes unbelief in the people of Israel and the church. As the main issue to describe unbelief, idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us, listen to this, to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life as if only the weird people do it. The Bible doesn't allow us to go there. He says, it's idolatry, it is found on center stage. It is center stage this morning in many of our hearts. It's center stage in the hearts of many churches. It is everywhere. Idolatry. It's a pervasive personal theme that runs throughout the scriptures. Okay, now with that said, let's read Jonah 2.8 again. And then I want to try to just kind of work through this idea of, of idolatry and, and kind of work this out and how it applies to our life. Those who pay regard to vain idols. So the first thing we need to do is, is figure out what is, I, like what is an idol? What is idolatry? Like, when it, like in the NIV, it's going to say that we cling to these worthless idols. Well, what is an idol? Okay, so let's, let's try to define idolatry here. Okay, so to define it, the first thing we have to do is make sure some biblical theology is straight in our mind. So here's the first part of biblical theology that has to be straight. We have to go back to creation. Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates, he creates us with a vertical and a horizontal purpose. Vertical purpose, to worship him. Horizontal purpose, to rule over creation. Okay, these are the two purposes that God created us for. We're going to worship him, and then we're going to rule over creation. Okay, so let's take that vertical piece of it. That we are all worshipers. God hardwired you, designed you, created you to be a worshiper. Now that does not mean that we all like to sing songs. Okay, that's not the idea of worship. It's much more expansive, much bigger than that. Worship is what we ascribe ultimate worth to in life. It comes from this old Latin word that means worship. It's what we ascribe ultimate worth to. What we would look at at life and say, that is ultimate. That is everything. That's worship. What we look to for our identity. What we look to for our significance, our satisfaction, our purpose, our pleasure in life, that is what we worship. And this is what worship means. It's looking at something and, and aligning our life around it, organizing everything in our life around that thing. That's worship. And here's what the Bible's saying, Genesis 1 and 2, that you were created to worship God. God hardwired you to be a worshiper, and that worship was to be directed at God. We were to look at God for our significance. We were to look to God for our identity, for our satisfaction, for our purpose, for our pleasure, for our meaning, for our joy, for our 
everything. It's supposed to be based off God. He created you to worship and worship him. This is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. That God put a God-sized slot in your heart that only he could fill. So, so now everything in life is supposed to be directed toward that. That you're, You were born with a craving for God. Okay, now this is going to introduce us now to idolatry. Because what happens in chapter 3 of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. See, it's all going well. We're looking to God for identities, for for significance, all these things until chapter 3. In chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. And okay, now listen to this. When they sinned, it warped every part of our worship. It redirected our worship. So now, rather than our worship being directed at God, it was directed at things of God, like at the gifts of God. See, post-fall, our worship didn't change. It's a universal reality. We are hardwired to worship, but the objects of our worship did. This is what sin does to us. And this is what idolatry is. It's a sin-shaped, kind of a sin-shaped reflex of the heart that redirects our worship from God to other things. Idolatry. See, the Bible, the Bible only gives you two options with your worship. Either you are worshiping God, finding your identity success, uh, significance, all of this from God, or you're doing it from an idol. You're committing idolatry. Those are the only two options. That's why the opposite to Christianity is not atheism. The opposite to Christianity is idolatry. These are the only two options for us. We're all going to worship something. It's just a matter of what God we choose. Okay, now flip to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is Paul's diagnosis of the problem of the human heart. Okay, it'll be on the screen for you if you need it. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to flip there. Romans chapter 1. Paul says this about, this is universal, a universal problem with the human heart. He says this, For although they, you and I, human beings, people, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, this is going to introduce us to some biblical language with idolatry. Verse 23. And they exchanged. Exchange there is a redirection of the worship that's meant for God. It's going to be redirected toward other things. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for things resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, here comes our language again here. Verse 25. Because they exchanged, redirected worship from God to something else, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, I'm just going to say it real clearly here at the end. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Welcome to the universal problem of idolatry. Idolatry, let me just throw out a definition for you. Idolatry is redirecting our worship from God, the creator, to his gifts, the creation. This is what idolatry is. It is redirecting our worship. See, when we reject and reduce God in our life, Like when we reject and reduce the worship of God in our life, we don't stop worshiping. 
We just go on a desperate search to find something else to substitute in for him. We find substitute saviors, counterfeit gods that that will throw into the place of God and act as if they are God. We'll align our life to them as if they are God. We'll find our identity and meaning and, and significance from them as if they are God to us. Okay, this is idolatry. Okay, now let me find what, define what an idol is. So idolatry is misdirected worship. Specifically now, prying directly in, I, like what an idol is, and I'm gonna kind of steal this from John Calvin here. Here's what he says about it. An idol is anything within creation that is inflated to function as God in our life. Anything within creation inflated to function as God. It's not God. It's something God created that's inflated to function as if we can look to it for everything we need in life, as if it will deliver everything we need. That's an idol. Here's what Tim Keller, he's been really helpful for me on it. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods that I would encourage you to get at some point. Here's what he says about it. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to uh, seek to give you what only God can give you. So those things that you're looking to give you and grant you what only God can give you, that's an idol, he says. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. See, an idol is that thing that we are basing our life on, our value on, our significance on, our everything on it's based on that thing and us in relationship to it what if that thing is anything other than god it's an idol in our heart now this is where idolatry becomes really tricky idolatry and idols are seldom bad things they're most often good things in our life listen to what he goes on to say we think that idols are bad things but that is almost never the case and here's why The greater the good, so the better something is, the the appearance of, of it being good and great and morally neutral, it's a good thing, it's a gift from God. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. You see that? See, the better something is, the more likely you're gonna look at that and think, that would really work for a substitute God. I mean, that would really probably do the trick. See, most often... Idols in our life are good things that we turn into God things. This is idolatry for us. It's good things that we clench our fist around. They become non-negotiable. It's good things that we inflate to the position of a God thing. See, so this brings in everything in your life. This brings in marriage for you. This brings in relationships for you. This brings in that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that husband, that wife, those kids That career, your hobby, your health, education, entertainment, your political point of view, it brings it all into the equation, right? Welcome to the like comprehensive view of idols and idolatry in our life. It brings it all in. These things that we can inflate to function as God in our life that we run to as if they are going to save us. It's like, it's like the pagan sailors. We plead with them to, to rescue, to deliver us. These are good things that turn into God things. Idolatry. Okay. So Jonah 2 8. Let's go, let's go back there. Those who pay regard to vain idols, worthless idols, 
forsake their hope of steadfast love. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Okay, so I want to take a second to describe idolatry to you. I want to give you three biblical metaphors, and then I want to kind of work through how idolatry works out in your life. So here's three biblical metaphors that, that the Bible uses to describe how idolatry kind of looks in our life. The first one is going to be a, a, a metaphor that deals with marriage. And it's really going to ask this question. What do you love in your life the most? What, what do you love supremely? See, this is how life should work for us. God should be our true spouse, but idols function as a mistress to our real marriage. See, so idols start to seductively whisper, if you will run after me, pursue me, delight in me, desire me more than God, I will give you everything you want. See, and this is what's in the Old Testament depicted just in real vivid terms as spiritual adultery. I mean, you go to the book of Hosea, that's what the book of Hosea is about. Spiritual adultery. People trying to find their worth and significance and meaning in things other than God. And here's what God's calling it. It's, it's idolatry. Spiritual adultery is idolatry on the root level, on the foundational level. So, so it's this question of what do you love most? See, your kids can easily creep into that category of what you love and desire most. What you're deriving your significance and satisfaction from. Career can do that. Marriage can do that. A spouse can do that. And by the way, you don't have to be marriage, uh, married for, mar- for marriage to be an idol. Wow, that was a tongue twister. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to be married to, to have this idol clenched in your fist that I want to be married. I would do anything for it. I will sell anything to make sure it happens, right? And so, and listen, marriage, all these things, they're not bad things. They're good things. But when we inflate them to become God things in our life, they become ruthless lovers. Ruthless to us. Okay, so this is that marriage metaphor. This question of what do you love supremely in life? Here's another metaphor for for idolatry. It's this religious metaphor. And it's going to ask this question. What do you trust most in life? Who are you depending on to rescue you in life? See, this is how life should work for a follower of God. God should be our true savior, but idols function as substitute saviors in our heart. See, this is what idols do. They pose themselves as possible saviors for us, as things that we can look to that will rescue and redeem us. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with the old movie. I think it was the first one, the first Rocky. Got some Rocky Balboa fans in here? A few, yeah? Do y'all remember the scene where uh, Rocky's, ba- he's about to fight Apollo Creed and he's asked the question, dude, you're crazy. What are you doing this for? You know, I mean, like, do you have a problem? You're going to get killed in that ring. And listen to his response to that question of why are you doing this? You don't have to fight him. Why are you going to, why are you doing this? Here's what he says. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. Remember that line? I love it. My heart's already beating fast. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. That's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I can go, this is good English here, them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know then I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. See, this is what happens in our life. We look, men in the room, we look at our career and we start to put it, elevate it 
inflate it to this God position in our life and we start to look at it as if, if we can just appease it, if we can just accomplish more, if we can just perform a little more, then we'll know that we're not a bum. See, we'll start to look at that God to save us from our insignificance. Ladies in the room, we can inflate our kids to the point of Godhood And we can start to look to them for our identity, our significance. So if they turn out okay, if everything goes okay with them, we'll know that we're just not another bum from the neighborhood. See, we can look at marriage for that. As long as we can get married, then we'll have significance and the security that we always long for. If we can just have a little more money. And have you ever noticed that Regardless of if you are completely broke in this room or if you're really rich in this room, it's always just a little bit more. It's never satisfied. So if we can just have a little bit more money, then we'll be secure. See, it's so easy to trust these things as substitute saviors in our life. There's nothing wrong with marriage, nothing wrong with kids, nothing wrong with a husband, a spouse. But when we inflate them to, the, to the, you know, this position of, of gods, they become feeble saviors. They will always disappoint you. They'll always let you down. So this is this religious metaphor. What do you trust the most? What are you depending on to save you? That's an idol in our life. It's idolatry. That's how it works out in us. And there's one more. It's this metaphor of slavery. And it's going to ask this question. What do you ultimately obey in your life? Like, like who ultimately is the one calling the shots for you? Who, who is the one that's directing you? See, how, how life should work for us is God should be our ultimate king, lord, and master. That's how it should work. But idols function as cruel and controlling kings in our life. See, idols function in this way where they start to exert controlling influence over us. But listen to this. By offering us seductive promises and extending to us serious warnings. So for the single person in here, here's the promise. If you can just get a spouse, if you can just do that, you'll have significance. You'll have the satisfaction you've been looking for. You'll finally feel secure. And here's the warning. You don't get that spouse you're worthless. You're, you're going to be lonely for the rest of your life. See, this is the warning. It, it controls us by offering these promises, seductive promises on this side and these serious warnings on the other side. Take the man and his career. Here's the promise. If you will sell your soul to this, right? If you'll sell out to this, your life will be larger than you could ever imagine. And, and here's the warning. If you don't, you're just another bomb in the neighborhood. See how this works? These seductive promises, these serious warnings start to exert this controlling influence on our life. This is the ironic thing about idolatry. We're created to worship God and rule over creation. But when we commit idolatry, we start to worship creation and we are then ruled by it. See, career is a great thing. Your job is good. Have a good career. Go, go make, go do all of that. Get married, have a spouse, have kids. But they become cruel masters, cruel kings when we inflate them to the position of God in our life. 
You see how this works? So it's really idolatry is asking this question. What do you love more? What do you obey more? What are you trusting more? Is it God or is it something else? Has something been inflated to the position of God where you love it more than God? Where you're trusting it more than God? You're depending on it to save you in replacement of God. Where you're, where you're trusting it to, to, to kind of take your directions from. You're obeying it. You see how idolatry works here? This is how it works out in these metaphors. And let me describe kind of the inner workings of this in your own heart. And you might want to write this down. Internal idols, and you need to really think about this. This is, this is massively important for you to get. Internal idols fuel external behavior. Let's say this one more time. Your internal idols, it's that which fuels your external behavior. So take our man Jonah. Okay, so when you, when you open up Jonah, you start reading, you see in verse 2, chapter 1, that God says, go to Nineveh and preach against it. Be my man on my mission, my message. Go and do it. But instead, in verse 3, he runs from God. Now here's the question. You've got to be, if you want to find idols in your life, you have to be ruthless in asking the question, why? So why did he run? What's his problem? I mean, why is he running from God and running to tart? What, what's his deal? So keep asking the question why. In, in chapter 4, verse 2, you might flip over to that. You're going to see part of the answer. He says, because I knew you, God. I knew that you're a, a God slow in anger. You, you slowly anger. You abound in steadfast love. You're gracious and you're merciful. I knew that you were going to relent if I went over and preached. See, Jonah ran because he knew that God was going to act in a way consistent with his character. So, so keep asking the question, though. Ruthlessly ask the question, why? Why is that a problem for Jonah? Why, why is it that God didn't want to see the people of Nineveh saved? And here's what you start to see when you keep asking that question, why? That down below his external act of running was buried idols that were hidden in his heart. You remember the first time we introduced Jonah to you? We introduced him from 2 Kings 14. This is the first time we see Jonah introduced in the Bible. And there, here's what we find out about Jonah. That God gave him a, a prophet's dream for a message. You, you, enemies are pressing in on you. And Jonah, you get to go tell your people that even though they're sinful and wicked, I am about to save them. If you're a prophet, you'd want that message, right? I mean, that, that is, that's a nice message to be able to say, hey, God told me to tell you this. That's a, that's a great day. See, that's the sort of message that makes you not only a prophet, it also makes you a national hero. See, that's the sort of message that when you start proclaiming that, people start to look to you and they start to kind of place you in that position of power, right? So, so here's what we start to see emerge with Jonah. That, that buried in his heart is this idol of his national identity, his place and, and position and his power within that. And that idol, that buried idol in his heart is fueling his feet as they run from God. See, the reason he didn't want the Assyrians saved, they were Israel's enemies. He would rather their, the enemies be destroyed than, than God rescue and save, right? I mean, he would rather them be secure than, than God save the enemies. See, see what's happening here with him? That idol is fueling this running from God, this, this idol of the self-righteousness, place, position, and power within, within Israel. If Israel was destroyed, he lost everything. He had nothing. His life and significance, all of it was based in that. That was his idol, fueling this running from God. See, this is it for Jonah. The question is, what is it for you, right? 
I mean, th- this is how idols work in your heart too. Every weird and sinful external behavior that you see in your life, every tendency that you have to do dumb things, right? Just sinful things. It is fueled by and motivated by and controlled by an idol that is hidden in your heart. So this is how, this is how idolatry works. Behind every one of your actions lies a buried idol in your heart. When we sin, it is the result of us loving and trusting something other than God supremely. This is why we sin. Okay, so think about the Ten Commandments, right? We talked about this earlier. First commandment is what? Worship nothing before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, why is that the first commandment? Why is that number one? Here's the reason that makes like the number one and the number one list. is because everything else is based on it. Martin Luther described it this way. For you to break commandments two through ten, stealing, lying, coveting, murdering, adultery, for you to break any of those commandments two through ten, it means that you have already broken commandment one. You see that? Because we have broken commandment one, we have set up idols in our heart. We are worshiping, finding our identity and significance. All of those things in something other than God, that is what leads to breaking every other command. So let's just take, let's just take lying as an illustration of this. If we were to uh, follow you around over the last week and videotape every conversation you had, here's what we would have found over the last week, that you lie a lot, right? That you lie a lot. I mean, we'll bend the truth a little bit, won't we? We'll kind of shade it to make ourselves look a little bit better when we need to, Right? I mean, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your wife calls and you're going to be home in 20 minutes. And she says, how long is it going to take you to get home? And it's 15, right? You, I mean, you know that call, right? And so when, when you, you report to work and you got there at 8.15, but when your boss asks you, you got there at 8, right? Okay, so you see this play out in a million different ways in all of our lives. We all lie. Now, the question is, why do we do it? See, if your idol is the approval of man, if that's your idol, then you will lie at the drop of a hat to keep your position and your place before them. That's why you lie. That's why you'll shade the truth. That's why when you describe a situation, you'll make yourself sound a little bit better than you actually were in it, right? See, when, when your idol is your reputation, if your name is on the line, you'll lie without, it's a natural reflex for you to lie to protect it. See, the reason that we lie is because we are loving, trusting, and obeying something in our life more than God. We have inflated something other than God to function as God in our life. Take um, immorality as another example. Why do people sleep around? I mean, why do people just go headlong into immorality? I mean, take the guy. We'll just maybe do a possible scenario for him. Take the guy. Why does a guy do that, right? If his idol is pleasure, comfort, he will willingly take advantage of any girl he comes into contact with without thinking twice about it to feed his idol. So let's take the girl in that situation. If her, if her idol, this buried thing in her heart, is the approval of people, she will willingly give her body away to anyone to gain it. See how this works? That all of these external actions are really just the fruit of idols in our hearts. 
The, the root of the problem is idolatry. The fruit is all these sinful tendencies and behaviors that we kind of display throughout a day. This is where Tim Keller says, idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Idolatry is always under the surface of it. We are loving, trusting, and obeying something, inflating something to be God for us that isn't God. One more part in describing idols. You might write this down. Idols cause us always to forfeit the grace that could be ours. They always cause us to forfeit grace. Okay, now when you, when you read Jonah 2 8, let me read this to you here. Those who cling to worthless idols, pay regard to vain idols, they forsake the, the, the grace, the love, the, the steadfast love that could be theirs. Right? This is the idea. They forfeit that grace. That's a rich biblical Hebrew word. It's called hesed. That's the love of God, the favor of God, the affection of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the life of God that he gives to us as we run to him. This is what hesed is. And here's what the, the writer is saying here, that when you cling to idols, when you hold on to idols, by doing that, in the same act of you clinging, you are at the same time stiff-arming and forsaking and forfeiting the hesed of God. You see how this works? That when we run two idols, we are running away from the one God who could actually save us who could actually deliver, who could actually follow through on his promises. And this is why C.S. Lewis summarizing idolatry, he says that idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. You see that? They always break the hearts of their worshipers. So when you inflate something to function as God and you give your life to it, the end of that road is heartbreak. That's where it leads it leads to a moment where when you depend on them most to come through for you, when you are in the situation of these pagan sailors calling out, pleading with these gods to come through and deliver you, you realize at that point that the promises are all empty. And you get to a point where you're like Jonah. And look at Jonah 4.3, where you're, you're, your idols have mocked you to the degree, alluded you to the degree that you're willing to look at God and say, fine, just kill me. This is the end game of idolatry. I love what Cornelius Plantinga said about idolatry. He, he said it this way. It'll be on the screen for you. All forms of idolatry involve us deep in folly. All idolatry is not only treacherous, but it's also futile. It's just dumb and ridiculous, right? I mean, when you really think about it, you would have to ask the question, what am I doing? I, what, what am I thinking here? Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, with created things. But these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, Year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. See, when we cling to our idols and hold fast to them, we are saying to God, no to your hesed. No to your grace and mercy. No to your steadfast love. No to all that grace that could be ours. 
Okay, so um, Jonah 2.8. Those who pay regard to vain idols. How do you discover these idols in your life? What does that look like, right? Like, how, do you, how do you find idols in you? And let me just say this again. You have got to be ruthless in asking the question, why? Why do I think that way, respond that way, sin that way? Why do I do it? You have to peel back those layers like an onion to get down to the root issue of the idol in your heart. So, so here's what I want to do. I want to ask you a, a series of questions and my hope is that God might use these questions to start doing that for you, to start exposing where idolatry might reside in you so that you might have an ability to recognize that this morning, right? And by the way, idolatry is always easier to see in other people than it is you. You know why? Because your idols make perfect sense to you, right? I mean, they make sense to you. I mean, it makes no sense for some of you to paint your body blue, go to a sporting event for three hours screaming at the top of your lungs and actually paying for it. But you're idolizing cowboys, right? But, but you do have one that's just that ridiculous, right? That's just that, I mean, just that dumb to do, right? You, you've got that in you somewhere. So the question is not if it's in you. The question is where is it in you? So, so let me just throw out a, a list of questions here for you. Number one, what do you fear most in life? What, what do you fear most? See, what you fear the most is a great indication on the other end of what you love the most, what you treasure the most, what you're trusting in the most. See, if you fear loneliness, you'll worship relationships. If you fear not being accepted, You'll worship a social network or a, a new car or, or money that you're going to make. Anything that you can get to kind of validate your existence before them. If you fear failure, then you'll worship performance, accomplishment, achievement. That will be the motto around your house if you worship that, if you fear that. If you fear something bad happening to, to you or someone you love, you'll worship control and power, Right? This is how idolatry works. It's always connected kind of the back door into what you fear. Number two, what do you long for with the most passion? I mean, what is it that you can just think about for days and it seems like minutes, right? Like what is it that you can just pour your money, your time, your resources, your energy, your effort to it and not even think twice about it? That's probably connected to your idol. Number three, and this is, this, is, this is a hurtful one. Where do you run for comfort? Like at the end of a hard day, like you're just wiped out and exhausted. Like you just feel like you got beat up, right? Where, where do you go to comfort yourself? Is it strange to you that there's actually something called comfort food? And is it strange to us that, that in Philippians, God, or Paul's going to say that for some, their gods are their stomach? I mean, is that a strange thing? I mean, do we run to, to food? Do we run to alcohol? Do we run to a video game? Do we run to just give me 30 minutes on the couch with no conversation, right? I mean, is that what we run to? Is that what we're trying to rest in as if that is going to rescue us? What angers you the most? Now this, this one like cuts to the quick really, really fast. What, what angers you the most? See, when you think about maybe the last month of your life and what you were really angry at, 
For most of us, that had no connection to the God of the scriptures, and it was directly connected to the God we have set up in his place. Right? So see, like, think about what you got angry about. Typically what you get just, I mean, when it's just out of proportion to the situation, right? Like when the situation's like here and your anger like got to there, right? Like that sort of a situation just happened. Like you just got barely nicked and a volcano erupted in you, right? That situation. See, that's connected to your idol. See, what's happening in that moment is something happened. You got nicked. The situation kind of presented itself that slapped that idol. And that idol didn't like getting slapped. And he came out, that thing came out ready to rip someone's head off, right? This is why we respond in ways that are completely like out of proportion to the situation. Because something in us, if if we value comfort, when a kid walks in at at 9.30 and wants to talk to us, and all we can think about is 30 minutes a sports center, we'll explode there. See, See how that happens? See, that idol just got slapped there. See, I always laugh at this scenario. In churches, a pastor can just say the word money. And just like what happened there, every eye like comes up. You know what I'm saying? And so like there's like this instinctive reflex that that comes up in people, typically, that they just get red-faced and angry. And and here's what here's the kind of the words that come out. All they care about is our money. That's all they want is our money. And listen, I just want to tell you, we don't want your money. We want you to be free from the love of money. And the reason that reflex comes out of you has nothing to do, by and large, with churches abusing money. It has everything to do with money is an idol in your life that gets slapped when somebody mentions it. You see how this works? When our response is is just out of proportion and anger to the situation, there's an idol attached to that. Let me give you another one. Who must you please in life? Like if you don't please them, you're just frustrated and you're just crushed if you can't get their approval. A a mom, a dad, a son or a daughter, a friend, a boss, right? See, friends can, can inflate to functional idols really quickly for us. We start looking to them for our approval, for our significance in life. We look to a boss for that, a relationship to that a possible boyfriend, a marriage. We look to all that. We've, it inflates the function as God for us. Let me give you another one. What's the first thing you want people to know about you? Right? Like you just, you were just introduced to them. See, I, I, did you kind of notice in Jonah chapter one, verse seven, when they start kind of, I mean, they set up the courtroom and trying to get to the bottom of who Jonah is and what he's about. The first thing Jonah does is say, I'm a Hebrew. This is who I am. This is where my identity is based. See, the first thing that came out of his mouth was an expression of his idol. So, so what kind of comes out of your mouth when, when you introduce yourself to people? Like, what do you want them to know about you, right? What do you want them to know? I mean, see, if, if we could just be honest, this is how conversations would normally go for us. Hi, my name is blank. I live in this neighborhood. I don't know if you noticed that. I drive this car. I don't know if you've seen that out front, Right? I can bench press like 9,000 pounds. I don't know if you noticed that, right? See, this is what happens to us. That idol comes out. What you want to brag about, what you want to boast about is what you're looking to validate yourself before other people. See how that works? Another question. This one hurts too. What has caused you to be angry at God? 
See, most, well, all, I would say all people, to varying degrees, walk around and live with a, with a frustration, a disappointment with, it may even be hidden, we may not even express it, but a frustration with and an anger at God. God, when I wrote my life, this is what it looked like. I was married then. We had kids then. The kids turned out better than they did. The job looked like this. The job I, I kind of wrote into this thing paid a little bit better than it's paying, right? So, so we write out this script and then when God doesn't come through and give us our script, our idol starts to beat against our chest as we look at God and say, do you know who I am? You're doing a terrible job at being God right now. Do you know what I need and what I want in life? See, like my life story was supposed to kind of have that, it starts here and then happy ever after type thing happening. And that's just not the way it's working here. I mean, God, do you know what you're doing here? You see, you see this? That, that's a direct tie to idolatry in us. What, what's happened in that is we've taken good things, good desires, and we've clenched our fist around them and we've made them a non-negotiable before God. God, this is what I want most, love most, trust most, and will obey most. Now, I don't know who you are, but you better start giving me what I want. See, it's tapped right into our idolatry. A couple more for you. What do you look toward in life to validate yourself? Men, cultural idol for us is to look to our career to validate our existence, to make sure people know we're not a bum. So if we can achieve enough, accomplish enough, perform at a high enough level, make enough, then we're validated then we're okay. Then we're okay with us and we think other people will be okay with us. Ladies, cultural idol, kids. See, we start to derive our, our identity, our significance, our satisfaction from them. See how this works? We start to build our life around them. It's a cultural idol for us that we start to bow to the, to the altar of our kids as if they're a God. And let me just tell you, when you do that, you are going to live disappointed because they were never intended to be a God for you. And at the same time, you're gonna absolutely crush them because they can never live up to being a God for you. See how this works? And, and we could talk for days here. We could talk about image and reputation we could talk about the, the want for power and control of our life. We could talk about, I mean, we could talk for, for hours here. One more for you. What do you sacrifice the most for? I mean, I, where is it just real natural for you to just to, to give money, time, attention, energy, effort? Typically that's attached to your idol. That's attached to something that you're looking to have inflated to the, to the point of God in your life. Jonah. Chapter two, verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit the grace. They forsake this steadfast hope, this, this love of God, this hesed of God. So, so how do we start to destroy these things? How do we start to, to get away from these idols, unclench our grip from these things? Look at verse nine. 
This, this is the process of destroying idols is to live in this verse. Look at verse nine. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah started to realize what the scope of scripture teaches, that salvation really does belong to God. That from Genesis to Revelation, God is the only savior. Every other savior is feeble right? Every other master is cruel. Every other lover is ruthless. Only God can satisfy in that way. That only God can save us. Only God is the great spouse. Only God is the great king for our life. Only God can function in that role. And here's kind of a beautiful looking forward picture and portrait is that when you get to the New Testament, um, the, the Savior comes in the form of Jesus. You know what Jesus' name in Hebrew was? Yeshua. It means God's great salvation. That all of our salvation, all of the deliverance we long for, all of the significance, the security, the pleasure and the purpose that we are building our life around is meant to be built around Jesus salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what he's saying here. That when we run from God, we are running from the one place where salvation can actually come, where deliverance can actually be found, where rescue can be had. He alone is that place. So this is really the call of the passage, is to turn our life from idols, to unclench our fist around those things that have inflated to form a God in our life and to turn back toward God, to cling to God, to forsake those things and cling to God. This is the point of the passage. And I'll finish it with a word from another pastor kind of commenting on this. He says this, this is the call to abandon our ruthless lovers to a better lover who will not ultimately break our hearts, but who was broken for us. To forsake these feeble saviors for a sufficient savior who won't abandon you, but who is abandoned for you. To rebel against these cruel masters for a good master who will not require of us more than he has already done for us. This is Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and I pray that we would find our salvation there. Amen? Let's pray. So as we kind of wrap up today, I'll give you just a second to sit underneath that. Idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. They control us by offering these seductive promises by giving these serious and solemn warnings. I pray that God would give you eyes to see through those promises, see through those warnings, to see him as the only sufficient savior for your life. That ladies, your kids cannot save you. Men, your careers cannot save you. They'll only break you. And until we put those things in the proper place in our life, they're always going to break our hearts. So, so what does this look like? Where, 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 are you, where have you inflated things to function as God? Where, where are you loving and obeying and trusting things above God? And I pray that this would be a moment where God exposes those things. 
where you repent of those things, where you turn from them. You see through their promises and you start to see to Jesus, to the Savior. So God, I pray that for my friends in this room. God, I pray that that you might give us great grace today, great wisdom today. We need help today. So God, give us a want to un kind of unclench our fist from these idols and to cling to you. Give us a want for that. God, help us see you as the great groom, as the great Savior that that, that we can trust, the great King that we can obey and that you'll never break our hearts, but you've been broken for us. You'll never abandon us, but you've been abandoned for us. So God, help us see that today. Help us see it. Give us good repentance. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.